This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Bandwidth brought to you by Pograin Press. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... The Green Children of Woolpit. Granola-based philanthropy. Autourism 101. And the death of Henry V. It has come to pass. The new third edition of Unknown Armies is in stores now. Unknown Armies is a modern-day occult role-playing game about broken people who conspire to fix the world. The new edition has a completely new character creation system. Now, more than ever, each character's attributes revolve around their wounded and worsening psychological state. The third edition also has a whole new way for GMs to focus play on the group's communal goal to change the world. And the myriad ways things are likely to go horribly, horribly wrong. Unknown Army's third edition has three core books. Play for players, run for GMs, and reveal the Book of the Weird for everyone. Buy them individually, or in a deluxe set whose slipcase has a magnetic clasp and unfolds to become a GM screen. Read more at atlas-games.com slash unknownarmies. Or leave immediately for your local game store. Because Unknown Armies is there, right now. The thump of miniatures and the rattle of dice tell us that we've once again headed on in to the uh, cozy, comfy gaming hut. But, oh, wait a minute, I'm I'm hearing something from outside the hut, uh, and I think it's emanating from the wolf pit, because uh, we haven't mentioned this previously, but the um, dense, uh, dark forest that's right next to the plain of huts, we've been having a bit of a wolf problem, so we've set up some wolf traps. So let's see uh, if we caught a wolf. Oh, wait, no, we haven't caught a wolf at all. We have caught two children, two green children, because Patreon backer Dice Geeks asks, how would you use the green children of Woolpit in an adventure or campaign? So Ken, I guess this is your cue to take us back, way back to the 12th century in Suffolk, England, and uh, tell us what the deal was with the green children of Woolpit. All right. Now, this is a contemporary record. It comes from William of Newburgh. Uh, who in, admittedly also includes vampires, but that just means he's a better historian than many other historians. Right. Our, our dark forest has vampires, I'm sure. Right. He, he yes. did as well. William, William of Newburgh wrote in around 1189, and he wrote a history of England. And in the history of England, he describes the story of two children, brother and sister, who wander into the town of Woolpit, or mysteriously appear in the town of Woolpit, depending or on found exactly. in the Wolf Pit, after which Woolpit is named. They don't want you to know that the wolves to know that it's a wolf pit, so they change the pronunciation a bit to wolf pit, and the wolves think there are like sheep down in the. Pit. It's like it's like Greenland and Iceland. Exactly. It's a it's a it's a real estate thing because if you name the town Wolf Pit, no one would live there. Exactly. Right. But if you name it Wolf Pit, people are like, oh great, we can just go down into the pit and get well, no tiresome sheep shearing, and then they're eaten by wolves. I'm not sure where the money comes from, but. Somewhere. Anyway, a bit of a digression. The children uh, who appeared seemed to be green. They were green children, hence their names, the green children of Woolpit. They spoke an unknown, eerie language and would only eat beans. Um, eventually, they uh, uh, learned to eat other food. They stopped being green. And the boy uh, was baptized and promptly died, and his sister um, survived and explained that she and her brother had come from a place called St. Martin's Land, a subterranean world inhabited by green people. And historians have bickered and argued back and forth over the centuries about what is going on there. And uh, the probably explanation is that they were Belgian, because that fits all yes, the facts. the mysterious language was Flemish. Yes, and they uh, came from a town which was inhabited by Flemings in England called uh, St. Martin's, uh, Fornham St. Martin's, and so that, that, that would be... That's a bit of a tip-off right there. Right, right there. That's a bit of your tip-off. And, of course, uh, they and, were green. And that was a mysterious land beneath the earth, I take it? Well, you know, that may have been the part that William of Newburgh put in. Right. But the um uh, but the but the green comes from green sickness or cholerosis, which is caused by 
you know, basically eating nothing but beans in the, the, the 12th century. So, uh, veganism in the 12th century, not as, uh, easy as it was, as it is now, or actually it was super easy, but it was also super dangerous because you got, uh, the green sickness. And so once you stop eating, uh, nothing but broad beans, then you get fixed up and everyone's happy, except of course the, the brother dies, uh, again, you know, fitting the pattern that, um, uh, half of them are sickly. So that's the, that's the sort of, uh, explanation that historians after the fact have come up with other right. people say it's the recording of a folktale as though William of Newburgh would stoop to record a folktale. <laughs> and, uh, my main man, Robert Burton, not to be mistaken for my main man, Sir Richard Francis Burton, not to be make- mistaken for my main man, Sir Richard Burton, but Robert Burton in the anatomy of melancholy suggested they were aliens. And uh, that is in like 1621. So he was ahead of the game. He said they fell from heaven, that there's no such thing as underground land. But if they came yeah, down from crazy, that would be nuts, nuts talk. By, by the time, by 1621, people had discovered Fornham St. Martin and discovered that it was not actually underground. I mean, it, it, you know, it used to be underground when all the cool kids would go there and turn green, but then it was just a sort of a, a touristy place and it was nothing but bridge and tunnel jerks. And so they, they hated it. Anyway, my larger point being that, um, uh, Robert Burton says that they came from heaven and a guy named Francis Godwin, who was the Bishop of Hereford, endorsed that by saying, and specifically, maybe they came from the moon. And so there you have the authority of British history passed down unbreakably from the 12th century about the green children of Woolpit, the end. And, and Agnes, uh, the, the, the woman uh, grew up, uh, she was named uh, Agnes, and uh, was uh, and the, the history slut shames her somewhat by referring to her as a, a, a wanton and a, a disrespected Again, authority. She's but, a Belgian. Uh, it's just, it just goes with the territory. Yeah, I, I have a feeling. I mean, she just lived by, by uh, ways that were not theirs. Right. And yeah. I, I think a lot of people are like, oh, where's your underground land now? I would be surly and, uh, and, and looking for and disrespectful. as well. Right. Uh, now, uh, so the question then becomes, uh, what uh, do we do to put this into a uh, game? And so I guess the first alternative is to uh, have a game that is set in the period. Right. And uh, it's a obviously a mystery, the mystery of where the children came from. And uh, we don't want any of these... Uh, aforementioned logical explanations getting in the way. Uh, so the obvious one uh, uh, answer is to have them actually come from an underground fairy land, and that's the uh, going out and finding that place is your gateway for the characters to go and get into uh, trouble in fairyland. Trouble with uh, the drow. Trouble with the, the green drow, the, mm-hmm. the more acceptable drow. And uh, so that's the obvious way to do it, but is the obvious way to do it the most interesting way to do it, Ken. Well, it's interesting if you happen to have a game set in the 12th century or close enough a la Ars Magica. Right, I and think- it has to be in a version of Suffolk that is enough like our real historical Suffolk that that's remarkable. Right. The, yeah, if green children show up in most F20 worlds, people are say, oh, look, hey, it's oh. orcs and or elves. Yeah. Good for you. I guess they've, they've come to buy stuff at the magic item right. shop. One of them is named Agnes because their player character was, their, their player was being a jerk and didn't come up with a cool name. Um... So anyway, uh, yeah, you have to have a re- either rigorously historical or rigorously secret historical, uh, setting to, to play in, uh, to make that happen. The other possibility is that, um, you are dealing with some sort of blowback from the green children, either more green children show up in whenever your adventure is, say you're running something in Victorian England, uh, more green children can show up and your characters can be like, ah, just like the green children of Woolpit and, uh, begin to trace the common thing back. So you're still solving the historical mystery. You're just solving it in your campaign's present, which might even be our present. I mean, if green children show up in Suffolk in, um, uh, say your esoterrists game, you're still, I mean, people will say, oh, it was an attempt to break the, the, the membrane back in the 12th century. And it was quick thinking baptism solved it. So let's get them baptized. And it's like, oh, that doesn't solve it because everyone in Suffolk is a smart ass, uh, secularist or agnostic. So we have to figure out a new way to fix the membrane, uh, with these green children wandering around. Now, of course, the uh, alien explanation is also a pregnant with possibility. So, uh, you could have it be the case that indeed, uh, they were uh, aliens who uh, fell from a, uh, a saucer. And because we know that, and the p- idea was to have them infiltrate our society. And uh, they were able to gradually 
uh, figure out how to look more like us, right? Initially, the disguises were pretty good, except for the green skin, and they worked that out. Unfortunately, the, the boy died, but the uh, uh, woman uh, lived and uh, uh, presumably had progeny, who then uh, had uh, uh, other progeny, and therefore there is an alien bloodline that begins in Suffolk in the 12th century, and it may have reached a certain point where uh, everybody who has some of that alien DNA in them, which could be a lot of people in England and especially now given the world, Agnes's uh, reported habits, you know that in fact was uh, was what was being alluded to there is that she was uh, making sure that she uh, uh, got as many robust descendants as she possibly could, and so uh, now we have a bunch of people who are uh, wandering around just as like in uh, you know we all have or most humans have a certain amount of Neanderthal DNA. Uh, that, in fact, people who are descended from Agnes have a certain amount of alien DNA. And guess what's happening? Suddenly there's a uh, a shift in the world where that becomes relevant and your alien d- DNA activates. And maybe your skin turns green. Or uh, when the alien invasion begins, you realize that you are drawn toward uh, helping the aliens when they arrive. And so the uh, campaign might be that uh, you know, you're members of a group of uh, friends who are tightly uh, uh, interwoven together. And uh, at the end of the first episode in which the alien invasion occurs, um, half of you turn green. And now you have to, you, you all that's happened so far is you've turned green. You don't necessarily have an impulse to go and help the aliens. But what happens in session two? Maybe you have to start making your... Uh, uh, loving the alien roles. Another possibility is that uh, there's some sort of time travel situation going on or uh, some other sort of uh, uh, thing that is addressable by time travel. If you've got green people uh, and they show up in the past, often that means there are green people somewhere in the future. Another possibility is that they're the green Orion. So if you're playing a Star Trek game, you can have, oh, here's a historical report of green people showing up in medieval England. We'd better travel back in time to see if the Orions are trying to uh, take over Earth back in medieval times. And that can be your sort of your 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 seed, if you will, for another um, uh, story entirely. Um, it might be your origin story if you're a, if you're a superhero. Oh, I'm an alien and I fell to Earth in the 12th century and my name is Agnes and I've been wandering around immortal ever since and I learned how to turn my green self off. I'm like the Martian Manhunter, but uh, this is how I've been um, uh, hiding out amongst you for 600 years. Uh, and so you can have you, you can use it rather than as the uh, fuel for a whole campaign. You can use it as the fuel for a single scenario or a single character. You don't necessarily have to go full wool pit uh, if you don't want to. Right. And uh, since we know from uh, good old William that there are uh, vampires are lurking around the area at the same time, it could well be that this is your unconventional uh, vampire origin story that you can use in Knights Black Agents where uh, the first vampire is Agnes, who, uh, you know, the way that she... Uh, was able to uh, get rid of her green skin and survive when the uh, her brother could not, was, uh, you know, a little blood drinking here and there. And uh, she has uh, uh, remained alive and has cultivated uh, human servitors since then who are sort of ghouls or quasi-vampires, and they're the uh, ones that you wind up running from in Night's Black Agents. Especially since the, um, uh, the baptism kills him, but it doesn't kill her. So either she sneakily avoided the baptism, like, you know, ducked under his hand when he was dumping the water, or bribed the priest to just dump it all on her brother, or whatever, promised him all those sweet beans. And so... That actually also feeds that vampire notion a little bit that uh, the, the the baptism weakens at least half of them. Right, and and the they can't uh, they can uh, this vampire is obviously vegetarian except for human blood. Right, that they can uh, you know that ordinary meat no that's not good dead meat that that'll kill you, but uh, you know you can still uh, nourish yourself on, on plants and so forth and that enables you to you know there's no fear of uh, the daylight in this version. Uh, but there are, uh, you would have to come up with uh, other vampire limitations. The obviously, uh, you know, staying away from Christian uh, rituals and uh, symbols, that's uh, baked right into the story there. Mm-hmm. So that's a vampire limitation that you would have. And, uh, but, you know, being vulnerable to accidentally, uh, it, I guess it would depend on, you know, how stringent the our vegan vampire rules are, right? Because if you eat cheese with a little bit of rennet in it, is that enough to, uh, that probably sends you just, into a little bit of a tailspin as a vampire and you, you feel sick. But, you know, if you, uh, 
uh, are served uh, Brussels sprouts so that you think are perfectly fine. It turns out there's pancetta in them. You're in trouble. Yeah, right. That's a that's a bad sign. And that that could actually be um, uh, kind of a, a fun twist on it that it it really is down to what they're eating and that that's where their weaknesses come from. And so they're maybe they're also super sensitive to like secondhand smoke and stuff like that, other toxins. And their real weakness is just spray a face full of you know Agent Orange on them and, and then they'll um, uh, just dry right up. Yeah, and when you realize as agents that uh, you're looking for a uh, Agnes or one of her uh, vampire descendants, it's like, well, where's the newest, where, where's the vegan restaurant in Prague? Right, where's the where's the most expensive highest end vegan restaurant in Prague? Right, well, I'm starting to get uh, really hungry for buttered beans, so perhaps we should uh, uh, exit this segment, have a quick vegan snack and come right back after this commercial with another exciting segment. Hey Robin, what you working on these days? Thanks to the Kickstarter for the Yellow King role-playing game, I now have 40-plus stretch goals worth of additional material to create and or oversee. Yellow King, Yellow King, is that the game of weird horror in which players portray interconnected sets of characters in four different weird realities, all investigating the reality-warping activities of its titular monarch? None other, Ken. Would that game also include the innovative new take on the beloved gumshoe system, which adds such cool new features as faster player-facing combat and the vivid status effects of shock and injury cards? Yep, that's the one. And is that hideous wailing I hear the collective lamentation of gamers who, for whatever reason, were unable to back the Kickstarter? Yeah, sure sounds like it. Have you and our friends at Pograin Press considered leaving it open for pre-order for those who want to get in on the initial shipment and get a deal almost as special as that captured by original backers? Why, thank you for asking that question. The question I scripted for you, Ken. Does that mean listeners, in fact, can pre-order the Yellow King role-playing game by following a link in the show notes? It sure does, and you know what else it means? What? You may now discard a shock card. A shock card? I didn't know I had a shock card. A shock card? Oh... The Yellow King role-playing game pre-order. Follow the link in the show notes and discard a shock card. The rattle of pots and pans, the click of the gas burner, the opening and shutting of the fridge in a frantic attempt to find something tasty to eat before your wife comes home. Tell us we've once more entered the food hut. And in the food hut, in fact, we don't have to open the fridge because here we are. We have some lovely granola. We have some delicious uh, snack bars there on the table. Healthy and delicious. Many of them with blueberries, vanilla, and cashews. Not to, you know, run ahead of right. the game. But uh, this is... This is not a paid endorsement, but Ken is a customer of the Kind Snacks Company. Exactly. A happy customer, because if you do as much travel as I do, um, you need to bring things that you can eat that will uh, be tasty and give you quick energy. And that's what Kind does, among other things. All of the Kind bars that I've eaten in my life have been purchased by you, Ken. Yes, it's true. And and what was the re- what was the result of, of eating those Kind bars, Robin? Uh, they provided me important nutrition for Gen Con. So exactly. I, in, in part, they, they helped... Uh, covertly sponsor the live episode, if nothing else. If if nothing else. And if only they would sponsor this podcast, then we could really talk about how much we like them. But sadly, or happily, perhaps, um, uh, Brian Gustafson, Patreon backer, has asked us to talk about their founder, a fellow named Daniel Lubetsky, who I would like to emphasize at the beginning, at the outset of this, seems like a perfectly nice guy who started a company that makes a granola bar that I will not just eat, but will voluntarily carry around in a box and offer to Robin. So, with that out of the way, what's weird about Daniel Lubetsky? I think we're going to have to make up what's weird or go (laughs) off on a tangent, because uh, Brian is uh, perhaps our most prolific uh, author of awesome suggestions, and uh, I picked this one because it was a food hot suggestion. Uh, Here's a tip, people. In addition to being a Patreon backer and uh, backing generously to get bumped uh, ahead in the queue, also picking segments that... uh, don't have as many other suggestions uh, given to us uh, is a good way to uh, move up in the order. However, so when I looked at this, I thought, oh, well, this must be like in uh, one of a new, uh, Latter-day serial cult like we had with uh, Kellogg or, you know, the, those early uh, inventors of processed foods who all had some weird... Or the uh, Ralston guy. Ralston guy or some, you know, usually had eugenics and austere nutrition involved. But as we're both saying, we've looked into him. He was born in 1968 in Mexico City, moved to the U.S. as a teen. Uh, he's a son of a Holocaust survivor, has a very idealistic 
uh, set of objectives for uh, his company, which he started basically as a small business in 2004. Uh, and so he has a bunch of uh, different uh, foundations. And so the philosophy of his company, uh, uh, after which he has named his granola bars, is that it's not enough to be nice. You have to be kind. Uh, and certainly I have, uh, I'm always very suspicious of people who describe themselves as nice. Yes. But, and his distinction between uh, nice and kind is not, uh, oh, nice just means passive aggressive and sulky. He says that, <laughs> he says that nice mean, and, and uninteresting. He says that, uh, nice means, uh, that you are passive, whereas kind means that you're active and you go out and do things. And so right. nice uh, means you don't get in anyone's way, but kind means that you're out there. Uh, doing acts that are kind. Right. You're g going out, you're being helpful. And so among the things that he does uh, to be helpful, he has sponsored a uh, program called Empatico, which is uh, basically a, I gather, a software tool that allows kids in classrooms around the world to uh, communicate with kids in different countries and different cultures as a means of uh, promoting uh, understanding. He also has a nutritional initiative, which is supposed to reform uh, nutritional laws to actually reflect uh, scientific reality. And so, surprise, surprise, people, a lot of nutritional rules and what the government tells yes. you to eat yes. uh, is sponsored by various industries. Yes, and, it's almost as though public choice theory is completely correct. And it looks legit on, on the surface. Now, I here's the part where we get to, uh, of the two of us, Robin is actually the dark one. <laughs> so, <laughs> when I... Uh, it's, it's not the American Calvinist, it's the Canadian. And uh, as I read all of uh, this material, because it is written in a PR voice and is very hopeful and nice, it, it immediately ha has me thinking, if I were to write a figure that is, let us stress, not Daniel Lubetsky, who does, all evidence suggests that he is who he says he is, but if I was to write a figure like him, uh, in a horror scenario or short story, he would be up to something e sort of evil and Cronenbergy because uh, niceness in fiction is extremely suspicious. Or I guess kindness in fiction it's is a tell. It's a tell. It's a tell. If you've got a guy, and and again, we emphasize we are not dealing with the actual Daniel Lubetsky, who, as far as I'm concerned, he could be in the damn Illuminati as long as those granola bars are so tasty. But <laughs> but my point is, we're not dealing with him. But if you see a guy in a in a in a fiction of any kind who has got like a peace initiative in the Middle East and he's working to combat food laws and he's got a software product that lets kids talk to each other and he has a luxury fashion venture and he's partnering up with artisans in the developing world yeah i mean robin is robin is uh, the person who went there first but it does not take me very long to say so cthulhu cultist right he's um linking all these people for some reason and the reason has to be because something dire is happening and he's the sort of friendly um, uh, face of whatever the conspiracy is. And the conspiracy might be Cthulhu cults. It might be vegan vampires again, because granola. It might be any number of possibilities that, that are going on. But if you see a, a well-meaning millionaire or billionaire in a game, they're obviously up to something unless they're Bruce Wayne. And Bruce Wayne, of course, takes great effort to not seem well-meaning. He just seems like a jerk. And, um, uh, the Wayne Foundation does all of his good deeds on the, on the QT. Right. Uh, after he got all those owls out, those, they were bad news. <laughs> right. um, and he also has a, uh, a book out of, of business tips. And from that, I've read uh, some excerpts from that. And and, uh, and that's when it started to look a little, well, maybe, maybe it is a little oppressive to, to work there because, uh, you know, one of the major tenets is uh, everyone must be completely honest at all times with constructive criticism. And maybe that's actually how it works, but... Uh, as I was reading his his tips for how business is supposed to work, I don't fire anyone. I just find another place for them, and I I demote them, mm -hmm. and and that's you know that's obviously much better. So it made me think of that uh, uh, Mr. Show skit where David Cross plays the uh, aggressively nicey wicey uh, CEO who just wants his. Uh, uh, employees to stop all the time to eat froyo with him. And I do want to point out that uh Daniel Lebetsky's first company was a watch selling company called Daleki and it's Daleki Times. So if that's not a um uh, a signal that there are certain robot aliens pulling some strings here, I don't know what is. Right. And and of course we still mean 
the other imaginary, yes. not Daniel Lemetsky. Not a, the actual one. Uh, because the point that we're underlining here is that niceness, sweetness, goodness is not amenable to strong fiction. <laughs> fiction is, is, a, is about a world of trouble and transformation. Uh, trouble being procedural uh, difficulties and, and challenges of the world of pulp and adventure and, and its re- related uh, uh, genres. Or in drama, a person who is already fully realized cannot be the main character or perhaps even much of a character at all because they are already fully realized, right? If you were to, if you were to start the story, uh, if you were to have a character who uh, began uh, in a, uh, a dark world without kindness and then uh, finds a way to make, uh, to bring kindness into the world and undergoes a personal transformation or even uh, transforms others, that gives you a narrative thread. But it's very difficult to tell stories about, uh, as uh, my uh, late mother-in-law used to say, nice stories about nice people. Why don't you write nice stories about nice people? Because those aren't stories. Yes, because those <laughs> are no those are those are anecdotes about your about your aunt or something. Yeah. Um, another possibility that you can use for your uh, not Daniel Lebetsky is that they are the patron of your global evil fighting organization or a backer or that the, all the stuff that he's doing is, is secretly to get as many eyes on the ground in these weird uh, spots as possible. So that when trouble emerges in the Pacific Northwest with the Bigfoots, uh, the granola guy is, is there and he gets on the, on the red phone and he calls back to kind headquarters and he, or not kind headquarters and says, we got Bigfoot trouble. And, uh, Mr. Lubetsky sends out the team. And so he's, he is your Bruce Wayne or your Maxwell Lord or your shadowy billionaire who's bankrolling all of your operations. And that can either mean that he's the perfectly, uh, nice M who gives you your assignments and there's nothing wrong with that or that he's got a shadow agenda of his own because he knows about aliens and monsters and Bigfoots and magic and, uh, and whatever else and Cthulhu. And so is he using it to gain power? Is he weaponizing any of the things that you kill or bring back? What's going on? So you can play a double talk or he can just be really passive aggressive and say, oh, you're not really doing a great job in the Bigfoot fighting. So what we're going to do is we're going to find you a place that maybe you're more suited for. Um, yeah, let, I, I think it's time. <laughs> it's important that we have a lot of really positive, constructive criticism about the way that you blew up the bank trying to uh, protect the people and i know that they were live save but uh uh perhaps we can do this better again next time and also i noticed that uh you over there uh um, shrike killer in in that dark uniform and all the glowering and the claws uh perhaps it just doesn't say kind no it doesn't Um, say kindness yeah so perhaps here's a costume that we've it's it's colorful we focus tested it with the kids. And so that can be a source of, you know, your character inspired by him can actually be uh, nice and lovely, but still have a conflict with all of the uh, grumbling misfits who make up the typical the, group the, of their The dark, characters. brooding uh, monster killers yeah. um, who aren't kind because that doesn't get results in the real world. Mr. Notlebetsky, you don't understand. And he's like, no, oh, no, call me not Daniel. Uh, my, <laughs> not Mr. Notlebetsky is my dad. and so that can be a a place you can put your uh do-gooder billionaire is in in the background there the other uh, so if you if you're not investigating him as the face of cthulhu and he's not um your um uh your 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 shadowy backer uh the other possible thing is that he's the victim of something going on right he's yeah he's, he's the person been, you're trying to protect he's been uh killed or turned into a pod creature or is being harassed by the forces of unkindness of evil the, the joker I mean, hates him because he is uh he's too uh unimpeccably good and wants to uh bring him not only uh, death, but before then, moral ruin, and your job is to prevent that from happening to him. And and someone who's deliberately spreading acts of kindness is doing more to seal up the membrane, maybe than any number of shadowy operatives. And so the uh, esoterists are targeting him specifically and targeting his operations around the world. And so you keep you know running into a thing, and at first you're thinking, well, is it because he's a rival sorcerer? And it's like, no, because he's actually out there doing legitimate good, and that is their target. That's what they're always going after. And so he can be a recurring 
um, uh, target as well. And maybe there is something special about it, uh, about his bloodline or his headquarters is on a lane nexus or something like that. That can be a mystery that you're solving, but it's not the mystery of this guy's in the reptoid Illuminati, right? That this is all a cover for some sort of baby eating operation. It is like, no, that's a head fake. He's actually just a really decent guy. And it turns out that is the thing that, uh, vampires and esoterists and, and aliens right. and, and near authotep really hate. And it the fact that uh, many of his best selling, uh, snack products are uh, vegan and therefore can, uh, be used to keep wool pit descended vampires alive. Uh, turns out to just be a coincidence, right? You know, they they just really like the product. Yeah, it's that they, they they it gives them a, a burst of of healthy fast energy that they need in their fast paced uh, murdering lives. And that's why the granola bars are found at all these vampire scenes. It's just that the vampires bring yeah. them to snack on while they're yeah. waiting. We found traces <laughs> of dried wild blueberries in each mm. of these crime scenes. Is it a ritual? Yeah, well. Oh. Um, well, I, I think now that we've uh, uh, solved the problem of a uh, topic that was just uh, too kind, if not too nice for us, we can move on to a, another exciting commercial and behind it, uh, perhaps another segment. Eight years ago, the terrorist agents of Havoc triggered a nuclear nightmare that devastated the Northern Hemisphere. Patiently in scattered colonies deep underground, survivors have been waiting for the radiation to ebb. That day has come. But the real battle for survival has only just begun. In Freeway Warrior 1 Highway Holocaust, you are Cal Phoenix, the Freeway Warrior, champion and protector of Dallas Colony 1. Murderous Havoc bikers hunt your fragile convoy as it crosses the wastelands of Texas. Defending your people and reaching your destination intact requires all the wit and courage you can muster. Highway Holocaust, an exclusive hardcover with dust jacket and book ribbons, is the first choose-your-own-adventure gamebook in Joe Deaver's post-apocalyptic apocalyptic freeway warrior series from the fine folks at phoenix now available from modifius supply this podcast with the nourishment it needs by joining such patreon backers as steven torres roman josh manon johan alston rob toll and richard ruane The rattle of the projector, the crunch of popcorn, and the sticky feeling under the seat tells us we've once more taken a chair in the cinema hut. And today in the cinema hut, we look onto the screen and, oh my god, it's subtitled and there are people looking distantly off into the into the distance and uh one of them is super attractive and the other one is super attractive but they don't seem attracted to each other it's it's there it's as though they're going through the motions at the whim of some all-seeing director because here in the cinema hut we are going to talk auteur theory and maybe a little auteurism 101 robin perhaps for the kids who um have been going to the movies blissfully without uh french intellectuals telling them how to do it you might explain the auteur theory right so uh, normally, of course, in our 101 segments, we do filmographies. We're going to mention a bunch of films, doubtless. Uh, but this is a core concept of film criticism that may be challenging uh, uh, to some because this is a case of a term whose meaning flipped 100% <laughs> since it was originally coined and now means the exact opposite of what uh, the auteurs who invented the auteur theory uh, meant it to mean in the first place. So let us cast our minds back to the uh, late 50s and early 60s, and the uh, film criticism uh, is mostly just newspaper reviewing. And uh, especially in North America, uh, critics do not take particularly seriously the product of Hollywood cinema. And they're sort of, uh, you know, there's kind of a nascent art cinema, and they're uh, beginning to be, you know, serious films and so forth. But most often, the films that get praised by mainstream critics are the very serious-minded literary adaptations, uh, and that is still kind of a situation uh, today. But the idea that the uh, directors who made the films were in any way important, or that the best films of 
uh, Hollywood might not be those big prestige literary productions, but might in fact be genre movies made by uh, people like uh, John Ford, the master of the Western, uh, Howard Hawks, who's very crucial to our tour theory because he made a couple of different films many, many times over in every single genre. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's, or, uh, you know, the, uh, Raoul Walsh, who was just sort of considered a, a maker of, uh, uh, sort of masculine uh, B movies or um, Michael Curtiz, who uh, whose films are all are almost all really great, except when the script is is weak, uh, as it is in a film I saw recently by him called Gold is where you find it. Um, but it sort of has this mysterious quality where you can't even explain why his films are so much better than the the film of another uh, equivalent figure. And so a group of French critics. Uh, Francois Truffaut, Eric Romer, Jean-Luc Godard, Louis Malle started writing in a French magazine devoted to cinema called Cahiers de Cinema articles that underlined uh, what they called the auteur theory, that the director was the author of these films, even though he was working in a collaborative situation in that where the uh, studios and producers had a lot of power and they were working with uh, sort of common elements of the various genres, that if you look at a Hitchcock film, it is very much not only uh, tends to be more interesting than similar thrillers by uh, other uh, directors, but if you look at the work in totality, uh, there are all sorts of resonances between them that make them more satisfying. And at that point, even a lesser film by uh, a major director or someone that they singled out as being a major director uh, is has something about it that is worth seeing in a way that Uh, a a film by a journeyman director is not. And we take for granted today that directors have a lot of influence over the look and feel of a film, and film fans will go to movies because they are directed by one of their favorite directors. But at the time, uh, this was seen as a weird and controversial thing to assert, and there were a lot of people who uh, fought back hard against it. And so the original term meant people who are working in the Hollywood studio system without the official recognition of their authorial power, who were sort of kind of behind the scenes exerting that individual stamp and against all odds making a series of films that had an individual vision within the industrial studio process. Now, Ken, uh, you know the next part of this story where the term starts to flip completely on its head, and that's what happens uh, when all of those French critics take up another job. Right. Yeah. So the, um, uh, so the, what, what happens is, uh, Truffaut, uh, among them, uh, perhaps the best of them, uh, certainly the best of the directors, if not the best of the critics, um, comes out and begins directing films. It's one of those, you know, uh, put your money where your mouth is. And other people have done it. Peter Bogdanovich is another guy who goes from, uh, uh, critic to director. Um, and suddenly auteur theory does not mean, uh, you're a, uh, journeyman working in genre against the studio system. It means you are a independent director pursuing an independent vision that rises above the studio system. And as always, uh, the thing that you are attempting to fight against controls you because that's what happens when you take part in the spectacle and or buy into the system, depending on whose criticism of the world you're looking at. Um, since we're French, let's, let's talk about the spectacle. Um, once you're, once you're part of the spectacle, suddenly you're an exhibit like everybody else. And so you have simultaneously the, uh, new wave of directors attempting to distinguish themselves from the French Academy and the French film industry and also from the Hollywood film industry, which they are being distinguished from, not necessarily by right. them, they're but not certainly finding, by uh, sudden inspiration in the mysterious workings of French directors working within a very almost even more calcified, even system. more calcified system. They're, they're saying, no, screw you. It's this, uh, it's uh, bringing up baby. That's really great. Or uh, front page or uh, his girl Friday. It's, it's not, it's not or front suspicion. Page. It's his girl Friday yeah. or suspicion or, or right. what have you. And so, uh, as you suggest, uh, other names include uh, Agnes Varda, who arguably made the first uh, French New Wave film, uh, Claude Chabral, who uh, became uh, very much a follower of Hitchcock's throughout his career. And so they all start making uh, films that revolve around the director. And uh, so now, fast forward to today, if you hear someone talk about, oh, well, this is still a piece of auteur cinema, they mean the opposite of what it meant when uh, Howard Hawks and John Ford uh, and the like were toiling 
uh, without recognition in a time when, you know, the thought that Alfred Hitchcock was uh, an important artist uh, was regarded as nonsense. Until, was regarded as ludicrous. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so, for example, uh, the director of uh, Les Affamés, The Ravenous, the uh, Quebecois uh, zombie film that I saw recently at, uh, at TIFF, when he introduced the zombie, well, it's a zombie film, but it's also auteur cinema. And what that <laughs> meant was it's actually good and directed by someone with an eye toward uh, making it good like me. <laughs> right. Yeah. And the other, of course, the other sort of uh, uh, flow into that is that American film critics as an attempt to sort of differentiate themselves from mere movie reviewers praised the new wave and then the new wave was had made lots of ton, tons of great movies. It's not like they're all emperor has no clothes situation, but they praised the new wave explicitly in contrast to the studio system that the new wave directors, when they were critics had been praising. So right. it was like, this is an auteur movie, not this uh, Howard Hawks garbage and um, uh, not this studio produced Western or studio produced noir or studio produced, um, you know, now superhero movie. That's not auteur theory. This is auteur theory. And to fight back, no one said in America really, no, the products of the studio system in genre were good. What happened is they fought back and said, there's no such thing as auteur theory. It's bananas. The director's just one guy working on a big collaborative effort. And that was the big pushback against auteur theory in the 60s and 70s was people saying, yeah, Orson Welles is all that. But also without a screenwriter, without an editor, without all of the other people involved, Citizen Kane is just a, a jumbly mess on the floor. And certainly when you look at stuff that Wells did without uh, Henry Mankiewicz and without Greg Toland, there's maybe an argument to be made that Orson Wells needed some help. And certainly Francis Ford Coppola without Walter Murch is, is, is barely a director at all. Um, yes. uh, so you can certainly look at the notion that auteur theory has sort of, um, uh, problems at its base over and above the fact that it has at least two meanings and is probably headed for a third one as we speak. Right. Because, uh, the, and, and it must be said that during the, when the auteur theory was being first uh, flowering, Hollywood was at its nadir that the, even the films of, uh, you know, Hitchcock and Hawks, uh, to a lesser extent Ford in the sixties and most, and even in Hollywood in general, even more so, uh, that was definitely a follow period for them. And so that made the French new wave films and then uh, films from other uh, countries from Italy and, and Japan and so forth seem even more exciting in contrast. Uh, and the uh, next generation of American filmmakers who then went on to be the American new wave, as you suggest, were the first to have gone to film school and to have absorbed film criticism and to have watched uh, not only uh, the Hawks films, but the, uh, the films of the French New Wave. And uh, that's when you get that great 70s wave, including uh, Bogdanovich and Lucas and... Uh, and Coppola. And, and Coppola. Uh, Spielberg, sort of, to a lesser extent. But very much steeped in those, uh, what were now deemed the classic works of the Hollywood canon. But now if you hear people talk about auteur cinema, they're talking about often very austere art films that... Uh, live mostly on the film festival circuit and that some of them will, will burst through and that although the Coen brothers are absolutely auteurs, uh, you do not necessarily hear that as the same sort of, uh, a term of art to, to discuss something that uh, right. has once again become kind of, uh, kind of rarefied. And, and again, it's like indie cinema. The most indie cinema in the world is the people who make Christian movies for the Christian audience. Or maybe Tyler Perry is an indie, but no one would ever put them in a conversation about indie filmmaking because indie doesn't mean independent. It means filmmaking that is like, you know, uh, Soderbergh or that, or that was like Soderbergh was in the eighties, even that's not even like what Soderbergh is doing now. And, and, and so the, the terminology that should be referring to the form of production is actually just yet another way to say, um, this is a movie that has these elements that we can't necessarily combine in any other way. So we'll just use this term that's sitting around. And these things go in waves too, that you would, uh, when you look at films in the seventies from major studios, you go, I can't believe that this was made by Columbia or Paramount that can you imagine the studios doing something that like that today, except mother and blade runner 2049 are, uh, very much 
uh, weirdo challenging art movies that got major releases and four weirdo challenging art movies uh, did surprisingly well at the yeah. box office. Yeah. Uh, and so, you know, every so often uh, somebody with a lot of money puts, puts it behind someone to do something that is uh, very much a distinctive uh, vision that uh, maybe the audience isn't prepared for. And in a way, I mean, that's what a lot of these sort of, uh, not even the American new wave, but the American next wave, the indie directors, your Soderbergh's, your, your, um, your, 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 uh, uh, Richard Linklater's, your, 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 your two types of Anderson, your, your Tara, your Tarantino's that are also driven, um, in a way, uh, they are, I mean, they're very much auteurs in both senses that they're working resolutely within genre. Um, well, maybe Anderson to a lesser extent, uh, Paul W.S., less than Wes, but, but they're not working within the sort of, you know, art film, uh, discourse the, of say an Abbas Karastami, but they're, um, working in, in, in genre and they're also doing a very everything they possibly can to put a direct directorial stamp on it. So they're sort of combining the streams of auteur, uh, into one thing. Yeah. So these terms are, uh, as I suggest, have, have flipped on their head. So if you want to have a big argument about what they mean, they uh, mean their own opposite and become paradoxical. But that's the history of the meaning of that term. So when you hear it thrown around, you can then uh, now uh, appear uh, penetrating by saying, well, which meaning of a tour do you mean by that? And that will uh, comfortably derail uh, whoever is uh, uh, film-splaining something to you. And now that we've done that, our uh, 101 duties are done, and we can move on to our uh, fourth and final segment of this podcast. The skies are dim always since the maker died. Time to weave a tale, my friends. A tale of good-hearted puppets in a bad-hearted world. In John Scott Tyne's puppet land, you rise up against the savagery of Punch, the maker killer. You battle his army of nutcrackers and his terrible boys sewn from the flesh of the maker of all puppets. Seek the gorgeous new hardback edition at your nearest retailer of beautiful yet sinister role-playing games. Featuring full-color paintings from Samuel Araya. And tons of ready-to-play tales from... Kenneth Height. Aaron Dembo. And Gareth Ryder Hanrahan. Are you ready to play? Because Punch and his boys are ready to play. Ready for you. The clacking of time gears and the whirring of chronotons tell us that once more we're standing in proximity to Ken's time machine, which of course is the conveyance that Time Incorporated uses to send our humble correspondent back with a vodka in hand to bend, fold, spindle, and sometimes just even mutilate the time stream. And this time, yet another of our uh, fine and exciting and upstanding Patreon backers, uh, this time Steve Sick, uh, has a question uh, for you, Ken, about your possible past activities in history. He asks, has Ken ever been to France on August 31st, 1422, to confirm or deny that it was French wizards that killed Henry V? and not simply dysentery. Uh, we don't like our great figures of history to be uh, uh, felled by uh, microorganisms, I guess. And uh, I don't know if uh, you know there's some darker agenda behind Steve's question, if he too has been meddling in the time stream. I don't know about that. But all I know is that, Ken, you're going to, uh, first of all, start by reminding everybody of what they probably need no reminder of, which is uh, who Henry V was and what he was doing in France to be felled by the aforementioned dysentery. Okay, Henry V was the great warrior king of uh, England, as celebrated in song and story, specifically Shakespeare's play Henry V. He was in France because, by God, he was king of France and was going to kill Frenchmen until they admitted it. At the Battle of Agincourt, he killed a great number of them. And so they said, well, you're not king of France now, but when the current king of France dies, since you've married Catherine de Valois. And you come um, up with this really annoying fusillade of arrows thing, which is right. revolutionary warfare in a way we don't care for particularly. Right. Since you've married the daughter of the king of France, when the king of France dies, you'll be king of France. Except April Fool, he dies at age 36 in uh, 1422 while he is out 
uh, wandering around in France at the siege of Meaux, which is one of the towns in France that didn't want to be ruled by Henry the sixth. Uh, Henry V, regardless of who he was married to, nobody wanted to be ruled by Henry VI. That was the worst of the roses. Um, but anyway, um, he, um, uh, he died of the dysentery, theoretically, that he had contracted, uh, during the siege. And of course, this is one of the great, you know, uh, refutations, uh, perhaps of the great movement theory of history, because Henry V, if he just lived a normal Plantagenet life, lifespan, would probably have conquered France. And at the very least, that would have had gigantic gigantic knock-on effects because uh Joan of Arc or no Joan of Arc, he was not going to get uh, gulled at Orléans the way that poor Talbot did. Right. And and despite what I just, uh, said earlier, uh, it in fact is extremely fitting that he was uh, killed by a disease that has spread by warfare since he was going around... Uh, spreading even, warfare. <laughs> spreading warfare and the deaths of uh, countless people. Uh, so uh, good for you, microorganisms. You uh, <laughs> struck a blow for dramatic irony. Unless, Ken... There were somehow, when you got there, French sorcerers creeping around. All right. Were there? there no. Well, yes, but they didn't do anything because witchcraft doesn't work, Robin. I mean, just get it get it through your head. If I've, I had to tell you one thing after another, it's there's no such thing as well, witchcraft. The, the magic level in Ken's time machine segments varies. It does. From one um, segment to another. But I will say, I will. It, it's called time travel, Robin. Read exactly. a book. The real witch in the, in the vicinity is not... A French person, but a Spaniard, Joanna of Navarre, who is the widow of Henry the Fourth of England and the uh, Dowager Queen of England and all manner of things. Uh, and among them, uh, <laughs> also, as it transpires, uh, a witch. She was accused of necromancy by her confessor. Father John Randolph, or brother John Randolph, I guess, because he was a so friar. So apparently ne necromancy was something that you uh, that broke the, the veil of the confessional? Um, yeah, because two members of her household, a guy named Roger Calls and another guy named Paranel Brokart, said that he's only saying that she's a witch to take away the attention of the fact that he's a witch. And he led her into witchcraft. Right. Well, well, if he's a witch, all seal of the confessional issues are off. Exactly, because he's a witch. And so the uh, whole thing leads to a, um, uh, a hearing in the royal council, and there seems to be enough evidence to seal her up in Pevensey Castle uh, so that she can't get up to any more witchcraft, except that she has a um, uh, retinue of servants um, and uh, attendants. They've just swapped them out for the old witchy ones. And she's allowed to sort of move, not so much freely, but within a certain ambit around the south of England. Right. Well, she's still royal. Right. Yeah. And, and so she is the, is the witch in the, in the scene. The interesting nugget of that is that on his deathbed in 1422, Henry V says, all right, uh, I think she's learned her lesson, release her from her uh, imprisonment. And so if her witchcraft has compassed Henry's death, uh, he was okay with it, I guess. Or perhaps the argument by boring, mean historians who hate me that um, uh, <laughs> Henry just realized that you could buy a lot of arrows with what he was spending on Joan of Navarre's household uh, made him say, oh, if only there was some legal recourse for stealing all of her property and not paying her any money, what could it possibly be? Perhaps an accusation of witchcraft, perhaps? And then, sure enough, one turns up. So the uh, possibility that um, uh, that the whole thing was trumped up as a way to take Joan of Navarre's money uh, is uh, unfortunately out there in historical record. It does seem like a logical explanation. It, it does, does seem, seem like out. one. That's how the witches work, is that they sneak those logical explanations of um, people wanting their money and stuff into things and throw you off. But uh, uh, Henry the Fo Henry the Fifth. At whatever for whatever reason lets her out at the end of his uh end of his life but she uh does not somehow get her dower lands and income back uh, in the transitional phase to the new king it's weird about how when a king takes all of your stuff you maybe somebody else gets it back but you don't right uh randolph was never uh tried for witchcraft by the way father randolph brother randolph um he was just tossed in prison and without trial and uh Died in prison, but well after Henry V died. Right. So, uh, does this mean that you have not, in fact, been to 1422? That you, you didn't need to go there at all? Are you kidding me? That place is lousy with dysentery. <laughs> so, so this is a, an example of, uh, 
a, a Ken's time machine uh, mission where you just did all the research. Right. And you realized that you did not need to go back in time. No, I did not need to go back in time. Um, uh, the, the, the role of turning France English, while perhaps laudable on some other plane where no one cares about food <laughs> or wine is, uh, is, is carried out. But, uh, but the shadowy forces of Ken's time machine seem to value France and England equally as though they were bilingual, as though they preferred both countries. So uh, as, as not to seem like a, a big waste of Steve's uh, valuable question, that, uh, God how forbid, do you, uh, heaven forfend right. that that would happen? Uh, what evidence uh, do you look for when uh, performing your uh, uh, time investigations in order to determine that uh, you do not need to interfere? Uh, obviously, the fact that you could die of a horrible disease. That's uh, up there. That plays a role, you know. Uh, <laughs> workers' comp at Time Incorporated is uh, is good, but not uh, you know a dying of dysentery good. Um, and so, how, how do you how are you sure that uh, you didn't need to go back? And uh, uh, apart from the fact that currently your version of the time stream has no witchcraft in it, right? How how are you sure that you didn't need to go back? Well, here's the thing about that. Um, I am pretty sure that there's no witches involved because I found the witch and it wasn't. A French witch. It was a Spanish witch. There, there, do, there do not seem to be particular contemporary uh, wizardly accusations floating around about his death. But there is something hinky about his death, and I do have a, 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 a stub in because there are two different reports of how he's buried. There is one report that he was buried with his old friend Richard Courtenay. Um, uh, and in 1953, they opened Henry's grave and they found another dude in it. And it may have been Richard Courtenay, but the uh, Westminster Abbey says that Richard Courtenay's grave is not where Henry's grave is. It's at a place called Henry's uh, Chantry. It's like underneath Henry's grave and that maybe Courtenay's grave was disturbed when they built the monument. And that's what happened. And certainly in Henry's last will from this timeline, there is no instruction of burying him with Richard Courtenay, which would have looked weird even in 1422 and certainly looks weird to us now. And so the notion that there are possibly overlapping burials or overlapping events, a slip in time, that is a, a red flag of something, but it's probably not sorcery necessarily. Although if you're accused of necromancy and a skeleton is suddenly appearing in your grave, Maybe I need to go back and take another look at Joanna of Navarre because right. she's there and she's probably a little steamed that she doesn't get her uh, solid gold goodies back. Uh, because I guess that we've, we've established in this segment that sometimes magic exists uh, and sometimes you take action so that it doesn't. And I assume probably whenever you see signs of magic beginning to exist, that's a, a big red flag and you go back and, and unexist it. Mm -hmm. So uh, when you're looking through, coming through a historical record, not necessarily one of this uh, story, uh, what are you looking for as the uh, red flags that uh, one of your many time opponents has reinserted magic back into the timeline? Well, I mean, there's two there's two red flags. The first is that one of the good things about magic is people cannot keep their damn mouths shut about it. So uh, there's always a rumor. There's an indication. There's some sort of hintery that there's witch witchness involved. And uh, Joan of Arc uh, certainly was burned for witchcraft. Joan of Arc. Uh, mad at Henry V, although not at the, at that moment. Um, so there is a, a miasm of witchness around the situation. Uh, and so you, you look there and then you, uh, dive into the specific case and is there, or is there not sorcery? Uh, maybe not. But the other thing that you do is you look for, uh, things that, uh, seem witchy just in the, um, or wizard, wizardly magical in the abstract. And that would be like your extra skeletons. That would be, um, reports of a, of a black cat or a black dog. It's all your sort of standard stuff that the, uh, Inquisition has come up with. I mean, they do good work. Uh, they do it perhaps more assiduously than you would like, especially in timelines when there's no witches. That's right. kind of wasted effort, frankly. But how do you tell the historical, uh, witches exist, but are uh, not magical, uh, incidents? From the 
oh, wait, they seem to have acquired some sort of actual power that I have to go back and erase from history. Uh, that is a, that, that, I mean, the situation there is, first of all, either you have a divergence, like I, like I say, that overlap of the bodies um, situation, that, that indicates something weird is going on, or you have a straight up, you know, magical effect that is reported, a, a sort of a, a, a medieval equivalent of a UFO encounter, and that is usually a sign that someone is up to something, because as we all know, a UFO report is never uh, an alien in spacecraft from Zeta Reticulum, it's usually sorcery of some kind. Uh, right. Uh, well, uh, at this point, uh, we could either loop on back to the children of Woolpit and have a sort of circular Ouroboros of a podcast that eats itself. But since people want to listen to this as opposed to having it devour itself like a, uh, a snake with a really delicious tail, I think... Or, or a really delicious granola bar. <laughs> yes, if he has a granola bar tied to the tail that, that, and, and he's making a movie about it, that uh, ties all of our segments together, which mm-hmm. means we can now uh, exit this podcast and uh, wave goodbye, but rejoin everyone next week. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Pelgrane Press. Askfagown. Arc Dream. Dark Tower. And Pro Fantasy Software. Music, as always, is by James Semple. Audio editing by Rob Borges. Get your priority question asking access by supporting our Patreon at patreon.com backslash Robin. Hold court alongside such patrons as... Roger Edge. Modern Myths. Joe Webb, Ludovic Chavant, and Richard August. Snag Ken and Robin Apparel and other Erudite merchandise at tpublic.com slash user slash Ken Robin. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time, and once again, we will talk about stuff. <laughs>